Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Chapter 10, Paul does something very interesting. He actually inserts an illustration from the Old Testament as a way to warn New Testament believers about the issue of idolatry. Now, what do you guys know about the Old Testament? What was, what was the big issue, especially, you guys remember back in Exodus when Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments? What did the people do down below? I made a golden calf. Moses comes down and hears all this whacking stuff going on. He gets mad, throws down the, the golden tablets. And there was idolatry. Okay. What happened to that first generation of Israelites that had been released from Egyptian captivity, and they were, they were there at the base of Mount Sinai. In numbers, they sent the spies in to spy out the land. Joshua and Caleb said, we can take it. The other ten said, we can't take it. So what happened? They wandered for 40 years in disobedience and idolatry, and eventually the new generation was able to enter the promised land. So idolatry in the Old Testament, if you go back and look at the Old Testament, that's always what's getting the Israelites in trouble. Idolatry, worshiping idols. They go into exile because they worshiped idols. They got kicked out of the promised land for 70 years. And so Paul is saying to the Corinthians, okay, let's just backtrack a little bit about Corinth. What, what do you guys remember about the city of Corinth? What are some things you guys remember? It's a rough city. It's an evil city. It's a pagan, sexually immoral city. Remember, there's like thousands of temple prostitutes, male and female, that are running around the place. Uh, people are coming out of, of sexual immorality. People are coming out of paganism. People are coming out of Greek mythology. There's just a lot of, of wacky stuff. Do you think idolatry is going to be an issue for them? If you're in a town where there's idols all over the place, you're going to be susceptible to actually worshiping a physical idol. And so what Paul does is he's going to address this issue of idolatry by going back to the, the, the story of the Old Testament. So let's look at chapter 10, and we'll see how Paul kind of tells an Old Testament story to warn them about idolatry. So let's start in chapter 10, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. I want you to know, brothers, that all our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What's he talking about there, the cloud and the sea? The Red Sea... And the cloud was the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire, the two, the two symbols of, of God's deliverance. God's deliverance through the Red Sea, God's presence in, in the cloud. All ate the same spiritual food, which was manna. They drank the same spiritual drink. Remember when Moses hit the rock? The water came out. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, that's an interesting statement. Was Jesus the rock? Literally? It's a type and a shadow of Jesus showing up there in the Old Testament. Verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as what? What does your Bible say there? Verse 6, Examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. 
As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, free, flee from idolatry. How many times does Paul use the word must? We must, we must, we must not give in to idolatry. And, and, and how does he do this? He uses an example of the Old Testament Israelites and says they were an example to us. What kind of example? A good example, a bad example? Not a good example, okay? They gave in to all types of immorality, all types of um, idolatry. And then oftentimes we throw that one, like a lot of times we, we, we really understand verse 13, right? How many of you guys have maybe memorized that? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He'll provide a way out for you. Um, we often quote that as a promise, but what's it in the context of? Idolatry. Idolatry. And so Paul here is telling these, these Corinthians, okay, let's backtrack. What do we know about the Corinthians? What did we look at like a month ago? You guys probably don't remember. A month ago when we looked at this, what... They had favorites, right? Some of them were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow um, Peter. They had their super apostles. Um, what else was happening? They were, what, suing one another. There was incest. Remember there was an incestuous relationship and they were putting up with it. And Paul says, why are you putting up? So there's a lot of gross immorality going on here, okay? Now, it even gets worse. You ready to go to the next one? They're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Did that ever happen in your church before? Let's look at chapter 11. They're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. That's been all through this book of 1 Corinthians, the word divisions. It showed up in verse 1. There's division, there's factions, there's, there's problems. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So what, what are they doing at the Lord's Supper? They took the Lord's Supper with what was called an agape feast or a love feast where they'd come together and they'd eat a meal. Now, in the church, do you think there were some poor people that probably could, like think about a potluck. There were poor people in the church that could not bring food to the potluck. What do the people with the food do? They bring their food, they eat it, they don't share it, and some people are getting drunk during the Lord's Supper. Now is that a major thing? To get drunk during the Lord's Supper? 
Can you even imagine that? Picture in your mind, like what? <laughs> picture in your mind what would be happening. I mean, you've seen people get drunk, and the elements are passed. I mean, what does the Lord's Supper represent? I mean, what is it for us as Christians? It, it's. I mean, it, it is. It is of the two ordinances that God's given us: baptism and Lord's Supper. I mean, it's something that we are to take very seriously when we come together to take communion. Um, we are to to really take seriously what Christ has done. And they're getting drunk. So what's their view of the Lord's Supper? And what's their view of each other? Is there any respect for each other? Is there any respect for Christ? Is that shocking? Did you ever read that before, that people are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper? <laughs> it happened. Now let's go on because this is where Paul gives the instructions. This is often what we read like when we take the Lord's Supper, we kind of read this passage, but now you understand why Paul is, is, is saying this. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now let me ask you a trivia question. How often are we to celebrate the Lord's Supper? Does the Bible tell us? It says often. For as often as you do this, the early church did it every week. Some churches do it every... How many of you grew up in a church that did it every week? How many of you did it in a church that did it like once a year? How many of you like once a quarter? How many of you don't really remember? Uh, okay. We try to do it about every five weeks or so, every four, four or five weeks here at Emmanuel. The Bible really doesn't tell you, like it doesn't prescribe exactly how often you're supposed to do it. It just says how, do it often. Because when you do this, what are you, when we're taking the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? Verse 26 tells us what are we doing when we take the Lord's Supper. What does your Bible say? What's the word it uses there? Proclaiming. Proclaiming. Okay, so let's write this word on the board. We're doing what? We are... Well, okay, so what does the word proclaiming mean? Okay, you're announcing. You're, what's another word for it? It's what? I hear it out there. Witnessing. I hear another P word. Preaching. Preaching. I thought I was only the preacher on Sunday mornings. It is a sermon without words. Does that make sense? Why did Jesus give us something visible and something tangible to remember his death by? I mean, couldn't I just, can't pastors get up and say, let's remember Jesus' death? But what does he give us? He gives us two things, bread. What do we do with bread? We eat it. What's the whole idea of eating bread? What does that symbolize? Nourishment. What does Jesus say? I am the bread of life. Anybody who eats of me will never go hungry. The Bible also says taste and see that the Lord is. So when you taste you know, the Roman Catholic Church, when, 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 the, when they take the Eucharist or whatever they call it, they literally believe that that becomes the body and blood of Christ. 
Now, and I'm going to take a digression here just to explain to you the Eucharist if you don't know what the Eucharist is, okay? In the Roman Catholic Church, let me, and, and I'm not telling you anything that's not in Roman Catholic writings. If you were to go talk to a Roman Catholic priest or to a bishop or even to the Pope, they would say, yes, this is what we believe about the Lord's Supper. It's in their writings, okay? The priest is called the Vicar of Christ. You ever heard that? The Vicar of Christ. What does the word vicar mean? Anybody know where it comes from? It comes from the word vicarious. What does that mean? Okay, vicar. Okay, we would use the word substitute. Does that kind of scare you, that wording? A man becomes the substitute of Christ. On the altar of the Eucharist, the priest pulls Jesus down from heaven and crucifies him afresh on the table. And when they take the elements, it's literally the body and blood of Jesus being partaken by the people. And they believe that when they take in the body and blood of Christ, it actually gives them salvation grace at that time. Until they sin enough and have to come back the next week because they may have lost it, they got to keep doing it. Anybody have a problem with that? And I'm not here necessarily to pick on Roman Catholicism, but what does that do to the finished work of Christ? Number one, did Jesus have to die again? Number two, does a person bring Jesus down from heaven? Number two, does it literally become the body and blood of Christ? No, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a spiritual meal. Yes, it's a meal. And it's spiritual, and it's a memorial, and it, it's a means of grace. It's not, it's not like we're saved through it, but we do receive grace afresh in the Lord's Supper. But the Lord's Supper is not us bringing Jesus down. It's Jesus being in one in charge coming to us as Lord in Christ. Um, any questions on the Eucharist? Anybody know? I mean, did, does that bring a whole new flavor to what... It's kind of scary. Do you think most Roman Catholics, and I'm not here, again, I'm not here to pick on Roman Catholics, but you think, because a lot of you are former Catholics, um, but did you know that that's not what you were doing when you were growing up? Was that explained to you? Or was it just, I'm there for the, the communion? I remember going to a Catholic funeral, but they talk about turning down, they could do that again, I thought. That's what you want to do with your head, I think you really want to. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's the whole gas tank analogy we've talked about that you need enough grace to keep, when you're saved, you're not fully saved. You need to keep doing the sacraments in order to keep, keep that grace. Now, when Paul here says we proclaim the Lord's death, when we're, when we're taking the meal, what are we in an essence doing? Yeah, we're retelling, we're preaching, we're, we're demonstrating the gospel. Now, why is it called communion? Okay, so there's, a, there's a, what we'd call a horizontal aspect. We commune with one another as the body of Christ. Where else do we commune? There's a vertical aspect where we commune with, with, with Jesus. And we do it as a community, a body, a family. 
And so communion, the very name means that we commune with God, we commune with each other, and we have things in common. We're a community. We're doing it together. Now, there's some churches that I've heard of that have fast food drive through communion. Like some of these big mega churches where you, the service is over and at the end of, at the, end of, the, of the, um, the room, when you leave the church, they give you the communion elements in a packet on your way out to take communion. Has anybody ever been to a church that's done that? You've been to a church that's done that? That one in Florida did that? Did they hand you the communion elements? On the, did they explain what they were doing? Yes, they did. But they said, go take it on your own? A time factor. What does that do to community, though? Yeah, it takes it out. And that, that was a lot of the, the problems I thought that I was seeing in that church. There was no community. Okay. When we take Lord's Supper, I ask everybody to wait. Why do I? I'm not just making you wait for it to wait, but I want us to take it all together to recognize that we're all one big family taking the Lord's Supper as. And, and, and because what were they doing here? Each man for himself. Let me get that. And some guys were taking a little bit more wine than they needed to. They were getting drunk. So, it was, but, but look at verse 27. This is where it gets kind of very, um, very sobering. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Some people in that church had died because they got drunk at the Lord's Supper. And some people were sick because they had abused the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm not saying that could, that could happen today, couldn't it? It's not above God to, to, to do that. But when we take the Lord's Supper, it's a period of examination, but it's also a period of joy because we know that there's the finished work of Christ and we can celebrate what Christ has done in the Lord's Supper. Okay, any questions on that? Lord's Supper on, on the differing views. I'm not going to get into the whole transubstantiation, consubstantiation. Those are, those are, those are terms we can... All right, I'm not going to go a lot into chapter 14, but chapter 14 speaks of the abuse of spiritual gifts. Now, let's just look structurally here. Chapter 12, Paul addresses spiritual gifts. He says there are spiritual gifts, and he gives a list of them. And he says, these have been given to you by the Holy Spirit for the common good. Use your spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. And then in verse 13, what do you, or chapter 13, what do you have? It almost seems like Paul kind of like, why did you stick verse 13 in there? Why, 13 should have really been where 12 is, or it should have been where 15 is. Because chapter 14 talks back about gifts again. Why does Paul insert a chapter on love between the spiritual gifts? What's the ultimate purpose of spiritual gifts? I mean, ultimately, it's to glorify God, but what's the purpose of them? To minister love to one another. Now, what were they doing? They were abusing spiritual gifts by saying, well, I've got this gift, and I've got this gift, and I'm better than you, and you're better than me, and let's follow this. I mean, it was like, who has the best gift? And everybody was trying to strut their stuff around. Does that show love? If you've been given a gift, why have you been given that gift? So, so, so here's a question. Has the Holy Spirit given every single Christian a spiritual gift? Yes. 
does every Christian know what their spiritual gift is? No. Does every Christian use their spiritual gift? Okay. I'm not a big fan of spiritual gifts inventories. Has anybody ever taken a spiritual gift inventory where you, you sit down and you fill out the, the, you know, and then at the end of the test it tells you, you're, you've got the gift of administration. Well, thank you. A man-made test has told me I've got the spiritual gift. Really what the Bible, the Bible never once tells you to take a spiritual gift inventory. Here's what the Bible assumes, guys and gals. The Bible assumes, number one, you have a gift. And number two, the Bible says, use that gift. Okay? That's really all the Bible says. You've got a gift, use that gift. And there's two major gifts. There's the speaking gifts, two big categories, and there are the the serving gifts. The speaking gifts would be like preaching, teaching, encouraging, any any type of gift where you have the gift of, of orally communicating. It doesn't mean you just stand up and preach, but you, you know how to communicate speaking-wise. The other set of gifts are the more behind-the-scenes serving. Like some of you would be freaked out if I asked you to stand up on Sunday morning and give a testimony in front of the whole church. But you would thrive if I said, hey, you know what? I need you to organize an event and I need you to get a budget together, and I need you to, to plan some things, and I need you to get volunteers to come and set up chairs. Some of you would be like, I can do that. Others of you are like, that doesn't really float my boat. So God gives you a gifting. Some of us have speaking gifts. Some of us have serving gifts. Now, the question is, how do you discover your gift? Well, the first thing I think you should do is read about the gifts and we don't have time in, in, in today's class to do that, but read about them. You can find them in Romans chapter 12. You find them here in 1 Corinthians 12. And then Ephesians, what was that? And what? Yeah, Ephesians 4. And in 1 Peter chapter 4. The list of gifts. Okay. The other thing is, is that the Holy Spirit is sovereign. He's the one that gives the gifts. Do you determine what gift you get? No. The Holy Spirit determines that. Why does He determine that? For the common good. Okay. So the Holy Spirit gives... Does one person have every single gift? Christ, Okay. <laughs> Yeah, anybody today, most people maybe have at least, you at least have one, maybe two, or maybe even three gifts. Now, another question, this is a debatable one, and I'll tell you my personal opinion. I think sometimes your gifts can change because God is sovereign, and it may be based upon your church or based upon the need at the time. So you may have a spiritual gift right now, and God may give you another one down the road because in the church body, he needs you to use that gift. God is sovereign over that. I, I don't know how that all works. So here's the question. How do you discover what you have? My best thing to tell you is this. In the life of a church, look for needs. And when you see needs, start to serve. And you'll come to determine, based upon your passion and your gifting and, and kind of your interest, you'll get to get the fit. Others will come alongside and confirm that gift in you. If you start using your gifts and serving, others will see that and they will confirm that. 
My father always said it was like the spaghetti principle. We had spaghetti Wednesday night spaghetti night for us because it's fast and it's, and it's quick and we got to get to church. So how do you know spaghetti's done? Besides my wife pulls it out and tastes it. How do you know spaghetti's done? You throw it on the wall and if it sticks, it's done. Same thing with spiritual gifts. You got to keep, sometimes you have to keep throwing it on the wall and then eventually one of them's going to stick and that's going to be your gift. Is that confusing or does that make sense? Sometimes I think we make spiritual gifts so difficult. The biggest thing the Bible says is if you see a need in the church or you see a need in the community or you just see a need, meet the need. And over time, God will begin to confirm that gifting in you. Now, the other extreme is some people would say, I've got the gift of teaching. So after a potluck, I'm not going to help clean up the tables because I don't have the gift of serving. So I'm going to stand back and direct traffic because I have a speaking gift. That's an abuse of gifts. You may have the gift of teaching, but when it comes time for everybody to clean tables and pick up chairs, you just do it because it's the thing to do. Okay, does that, does that make sense? So sometimes we can say, you know, I have got a speaking gift, so these, these menial, these quote-unquote menial things I'm not going to do. That's, that's not the case. Nothing's menial in God's economy. Do you realize that a lot of things would not get done in church unless you had a lot of these people doing stuff. Seriously. Very few people in a church have this gifting. Your teachers, your leaders, but a lot of people have these gifts. And so don't think that spiritual gift is all about the guy standing up front. You know, a lot of times in church growing up, it was like, you know, there's only three places to serve in church. The choir, Sunday school teacher, or an usher. And it ruled out a lot of women because in some churches they didn't allow women ushers. Okay? And so it's kind of like, yeah, those are the three places. So does your spiritual gift have to be within the four walls of the church? Or can it be used out in the community to, to further to be an extension of the church? Because just think of it this way, guys. There's little heads popping in looking at um, Let's Let me ask you this question. Do you think most churches there's 100% participation of everybody using their gifts? And I don't know, I've never seen a church that's had that. When we get to heaven, it'll, I don't know if we'll need spiritual gifts when we get to heaven because we'll be perfect. But the healthier the church, the more people using their spiritual gifts. Now, the issue in 1 Corinthians is they're, they're abusing those gifts. And Paul comes back and says, listen, here's, here's how you do it. And then he talks about orderly worship and things like that. And I'm not going to get into a lot of that stuff because you guys can go read about the... The main thing is they're abusing gifts. Okay. Now, Paul does something very, very important in chapter 15. Um, I think chapter 15, probably out of almost Paul's, all, all of Paul's writings, where's my eraser? No, it's on the floor. Out of, out of almost all of Paul's writings, chapter 15 is probably one of his most important because he, said it's, he says it's the most important. So when Paul says something's the most important, what should we take him at his word? Yes. So let's look at chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What's Paul talking about there? The gospel. What is the gospel? If I were to ask you, what's the gospel? What would your answer be? 
that bluegrassy type music they play down the south with those singers. That's gospel music. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. No, those are the gospels. What's the gospel? The good news of what? Of Christ. Okay, let's, yeah, you guys are getting there. It's, it's, the gospel is more than just good news. It's the good news of something. Let's look at what Paul says in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of what? First importance. So basically Paul is saying, I'm going to tell you the most important thing I can tell you. I'm going to tell you the gospel. Here's what it is. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So the gospel is the good news of the perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I would also add his ascension up to heaven that he's king of kings and lord of lords and he commands all people everywhere to repent and believe in him is the only way. It's a gospel in a nutshell. It's the good news, the most important news of the perfect life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ as Lord and his command for everywhere to repent and, for everyone everywhere to repent and believe in him is the only way of salvation. Would you agree? Now there's a whole lot more that you can unpack the implications of the gospel, but the, the ultimate gospel um, is, is the good news of Jesus. And how many people did he appear to? More than how many? 500 people. So you have 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And even Paul, he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus even, even like later on. All right, let's go down and talk about the promise of the resurrection because chapter 15 gets kind of heavy. But then we go down to verse... Um, 50, 1 Corinthians 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the, imper- when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's going to happen at the final trumpet? How many times does he say so? We will be what? Changed. Now, don't ask me how that's going to happen. I don't know the science or the physiology or the chemistry. All I know is that in a twinkling, what is the twinkling of an eye? I don't know how many milliseconds it is either, but it's an expression. In a snap second, we're going to be transformed with a new body. And if you go back to 1 Thessalonians, you find out that those of us who are alive those that are dead are going to go before us. So those that are already in the grave, they're going to go before us. We who are still alive will be caught up in the air in the twinkling of an eye. We will be getting our new bodies, glorified bodies, bodies that can live forever in the new heavens, the new earth. 
Did God create Adam and Eve just as souls? No. From the very beginning, God's purpose was that humans would have a body. And a lot of people have a Tom and Jerry theology of end times, don't they? You ever seen Tom and Jerry? What happens when you go to heaven? You float up there and your little baby in a diaper playing a harp on on a cloud. Or there's like this little soul floating around up there. Or Casper the Friendly Ghost. No, we are actually going to have a physical body in the new heavens and the new earth. Does Jesus have a body right now in heaven? Absolutely. He's the resurrected Christ. If we were to step foot into heaven and look at Jesus, we could see the what? The nail scars in his hands and feet. And on his side, he has a resurrected body. We will have a resurrected body in a twinkling of an eye. And Paul says there, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. So is death, let's talk about death for a moment. I know it's not a pleasant, I wasn't planning on talking about death, but let's just talk about it. What word have we used to lessen death in our culture today that they didn't use in centuries past? We say that person passed away. Do you have, not that it's wrong if you say somebody passed away, but what does that imply? They, they moved somewhere else. Okay, they passed. It's kind of crass to say they died. But literally, what does the Bible say? They died. We tried to, we don't like death in our culture, so we tried to lessen the blow of death by saying they passed away or they moved on or they, you know, they went to their forwarding address or they, I don't know, they, 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 they did this or that. But the Bible says death is what? The final enemy. And all of us are destined to die unless Jesus comes back and we're raptured. But all of us are destined to die. Should we as Christians fear death? That's easier said than done, right? (laughs) We shouldn't fear death. Yeah, the means of how we die could be fearful. Like I always thought I'd love to just die in my sleep, you know, as an old age. I go to bed, I wake up, and I'm in heaven. You know, I don't want to get beheaded for my faith. I don't want to get tortured. I don't want to get decapitated. I mean, it could be all the different ways you could die. I just don't want to go through those. Or drowning, I think that would be, like drowning would be very just. So God's in charge of how we die and when we die, but we need not fear death because, what does Paul say there? Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where's your, where's your sting? Death stings, doesn't it? Anybody ever seen a loved one die of cancer? It's a sting. It's not pretty. It's, it's death. But what's on the other side? Life in the new heavens and the new earth with our new bodies. And that's a great victory. So we can sing, victory in Jesus, my Savior. We can because Christ gives us what? The victory through his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay. Any questions on 1 Corinthians before we dive into 2 Corinthians? And again, guys, this is a survey class, so we're going flyby. We're looking at issues, topics. What we're going to do when we get into 2 Corinthians is we're going to look at demonology and Satanology and spiritual warfare. And some of you are like, what in the world is he talking about? Demonology. It just happened to, to happen that way because I was going through 2 Corinthians and I'm like, you know, Paul mentions, like on three times, this whole issue of Satan. I thought, when was the last time I taught on demons, the origin of Satan, spiritual warfare, 
and all that kind of stuff. So hopefully you're okay with me talking about that tonight. Is, is that okay? Okay. So let's go to 2 Corinthians. And let's look at three verses. There's a lot of stuff we could look at in 2 Corinthians. It's actually, we don't have, there's actually four letters to the Corinthians. Two of them are lost. They're not inspired, but really this could be 3 Corinthians or it could be 4 Corinthians. But we call it 2 Corinthians because this is the second letter that we actually have. I'm not trying to confuse you there, but there's two lost letters. How do you, how do you know that? Because, um, yeah, it doesn't necessarily say that in there, but it alludes to some letters that from, from Chloe. And, and if you go read some commentaries on First and Second Corinthians, and you go read scholars and commentaries, that they talk a lot about the two lost Corinthian letters. So, but I, that's, that's, that's a side point. Okay. All right, let's look at chapter 2, verse 11. Just one little interesting verse there. It's like, like in the middle of a sentence. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his, what is your words, what does your Bible say? Designs. Or, okay, so what are, the, what are the two words there? Okay, what's the first word? What does your translation say? Mine says outwitted. What, is, what does the other translation say? Well, the, for the verb, so that we would not be what? He would not take advantage. What are some other ways? <clears throat> Does yours all say outwitted? Okay. By his, okay, what, what are some of the words? Schemes, designs, devices. Okay, before we go any further, what does that tell us about Satan? He has schemes and devices that, if we're not careful, can what? Outwit us. Now, whatever you think about Satan, he's a highly intelligent being. And he's been around the block. He was there when Adam and Eve fell, and he's still around today. And he's had thousands of years to observe human behavior. And he's got schemes and designs, and he knows how to use them. And so Paul is saying in this passage, is there a possibility you could be outwitted by Satan? You could be taken advantage of by Satan. Yes. So let's look at another passage of Scripture. Let's look at chapter 4. Verses 1 through 7. In God's, right, let's go back up to verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, who's their case? Who's he talking about? Those that are perishing, which would be who? Those that don't believe lost people. <clears throat> the God of this world. Now, who's the God of this world? Lowercase g, Satan. He has done what? He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What does Satan do to unbelievers? He puts blinders on their eyes. And what's, what, what, are they, what are non-believers prevented from seeing? What does he say there in your text? The glory of Christ. So if people are blind, if, if somebody's blind, what has to happen? In order that for them to be able to, to see the glory of Christ, what has to happen? Blinders have to be taken off. Okay. 
Can we in and of ourselves take our blinders off in our own sinful condition? No, we, something has to happen to us for those blinders to come off. But if the God of this age has blinded us from seeing the glory of Christ, okay, that's verse 4. The God of this age has blinded us. Now let's go down to verse 6 because there's like a little sandwich technique here. What does verse 6 say? For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What does that sound like? Does that sound like Genesis 1-1? Let there be. Who's the one giving the light here? God does what? God opens blind eyes to see Jesus. Okay, so if Satan blinds unbelievers, God opens the blind eyes of unbelievers so that ultimately they can see the glory of Christ. Now, how does this happen? Does it just happen automatically? Look at verse 4. I mean, verse 5, the middle verse. tells us how it happens. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants. So how does it happen? It's when Jesus as Lord is what? Preached or proclaimed. So let's make this real practical. You've got a lost person that you're really trying to witness to. You've been praying for them for years. What's their condition right now? As good a person as you think they are, and you, you may be good friends with them, they may be a family member. What's their condition right now without Christ? Dead and blinded. Do you as a Christian see the glory of Christ? I mean, does he, does he fill your gaze? Are you, do you love Jesus? Are you passionately wanting to see? Is Jesus exciting to you as a Christian? Hopefully he is. If he's not exciting to you as a Christian, then Houston, we have a problem. Are we thrilled and excited and joyful about Jesus? Our lost people, they could care less about Jesus, which doesn't make sense to us, does it? Because how would you not love Jesus? Well, you've been blinded by the God of this age. Something has happened to us to cause us to love Jesus. What's happened? God, just like he did at creation, said, let there be light in Sean's heart. And when God said, let there be light in Sean's heart, what happened? For the very first time, I saw Jesus, and he wasn't boring. He was glorious and magnificent <coughs> and wonderful. But how did that happen? <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, but how did that happen? I had a Sunday school teacher that told me the gospel every Sunday in and out. I had parents that shared with me the gospel all the time. <coughs> I had preachers that shared with me the gospel all the time. How many of you got saved as an adult by another person that shared with you the gospel of Jesus Christ? Raise your hand. How many of you were like in a hotel room and you just read the Bible and got saved on your own? How many of you were little when you were saved? How many, even though you were little when you were saved, somebody shared with you the gospel? Very rarely is somebody gets saved just out, out of the blue. Now you hear those stories of those guys that are like about to you know, shoot themselves and they're in a hotel room and they pull out the Gideon's Bible and they get saved. And I'm not denying that. I mean, that's a great thing. But most people get saved by another person opening their mouth and sharing with them the gospel. So Paul says the way that God does this, God is sovereign in doing this, isn't it? We can't do this. But the way God uses that is he uses us in our mouths to proclaim the gospel. So 
sometimes when you share the gospel with somebody, is it like beating your head against the wall because they're just not getting it? Has anybody ever had that? Why can't you see? Why are you so blind? Why can't you see? What does the Bible say? They're blinded. And God has to do that work. And how does God do that work? You preach Jesus Christ as Lord. So we also find out something that Satan does here. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. Now notice what verse 7 says. There's a a cool Christian band that's named after this. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Now what's the treasure? We have this treasure in jars of clay. What's What's a clay pot? Nothing big. It's not gold. What's the treasure? I think it's both. I think it's the gospel. I think it's Jesus is the ultimate treasure, but the treasure is the proclaiming of Jesus as well. So either way you look at it, it's either the gospel or Jesus, but it goes back to the, it's the glory of God and Christ is the treasure. And we carry around this treasure as clay pots, meaning what? We're frail, we're weak, we're not all that. We, we make mistakes, we, we look foolish, we look stupid. We're, we're, we're just kind of clay pots. Why does God, why, have you ever thought, why? Have you ever thought about this? If you were a sovereign God, wouldn't it be a whole lot easier just to put a big, huge neon sign in the sky that people could look up to and get saved? Why does he entrust the salvation of sinners to weak people like us to make sure that the message gets out? Exactly, and it says it right there, doesn't it? so that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So if anybody gets saved, it's not because we were all that, or we were all so persuasive, or we were so with it. It's because we're just weak, foolish people that are clueless, but we have a treasure, and we tell people about Jesus and let God do the work of opening their eyes so that when the eyes get open, God gets the glory. And we're these clay pots. All right, let's go look at another passage. This is probably the familiar one at the end of 2 Corinthians. And don't ask me to explain this because I don't understand it. Above my pay grade, when I get to heaven, we'll ask Paul. (laughs) Chapter 12. You guys know this. If you've been in church long enough, you've kind of maybe even quoted probably maybe one of your favorite passages, 12.9. I know for me, that's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Times of comfort, times of of God's encouragement. So let's look at chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, hint, hint, that's me. I knew it, Paul speaking. I knew a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's this man that got caught up to the third heaven and saw things which no man may utter. And he comes back and says, I can't tell you what I saw. But what does God do to keep Paul humble? Because if you, and you see this today on televangelists, how many people claim to have some type of unique revelation from God and they're selling their products so anybody that was willing to buy? Paul, the, gospel, the apostle, the epistle writer, was really caught up to heaven. And what could he have done? He could have gone on the circuit and gone all around the world and said, here's what God showed me, and he could have charged people money. and He could have been so inflated with the fact that I got to go to heaven and see things that nobody else got to see. I'm the man. If there's, a, if there's apostles out there that think they've got it, I've got better than even Peter. Now, Peter got to go up to the Mount of Transfiguration to see Jesus, but I got to go up to heaven. So I got Peter beat. If you think Peter's the highest, I got Peter beat. You think John's cool? He's, he's on that Isle of Patmos. He, he may have seen visions in Revelation, but I got to go up there. I got everybody beat. Paul could have easily done that. So what, is, what happens? A messenger of Satan. This, we don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. All we know is Paul says a thorn in the flesh was given to him. Probably some type of physical ailment that he had to deal with that was excruciatingly painful. And the purpose of that was so that he would remain humble. And what does Paul do? Three times. Does that mean like three times in a row? He said, Jesus, take it away. Jesus, take it away. Jesus, take it away. I think it means that on three separate prolonged occasions, Paul pleaded with Jesus to take this away. And what does Jesus say? N-O. Can God answer prayers with N-O? We always think God needs to answer with yes. God says, no, I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to give you something better. And we think, something better? Now, wait a minute. What could be better than having this problem taken away? My grace is what? Sufficient for you, for my powers made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, if I'm going to boast... I'm not going to boast in the fact that I got to go up to heaven and see these things. I'm going to boast in the fact that I've been beaten, I've been persecuted, I have this affliction, but the power of Christ rests on me and that's sufficient. That's a mature man, mature man of God there. But notice, who was it? It was a messenger of Satan to do what? My translation says harass. I think King James says buffet. So can Satan harass you? Sure can. Now, let's go into the whole issue of the gospel and spiritual warfare. Let me give you a quote by C.S. Lewis. Is it up there on your screen? It's not on your screen? Is it on your paper? She must not have put it on there. Okay, let me give you a quote but from C.S. Lewis from the Screwtape Letters. He says this. <coughs> Excuse me. There are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel and have an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The two extremes. One extreme, they don't exist. Let's not talk about demons. The other extreme is let's get so wrapped up in demons, that's all we think about. Both of those are unhealthy. Do demons exist? Yes. yes. Should we be unhealthily wrapped up in demon, talking about demons all the time? Have you ever met somebody that's like really into like, 
They're more into demons. I, I knew some people like in college that were more into like figuring out demons than they were about figuring out Jesus. Kind of got a little scary. I mean, I know we need to know the enemy, but sometimes you can get so much into the other extreme. But we need to know about this. So there are three enemies, okay? So let me speak to you about the unholy trinity. What's the holy trinity? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Do you know there's an unholy trinity? The unholy trinity. And it's on your sheet there. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. These three enemies are the enemies of our soul. They're the unholy trinity. The first is the world. What does John say? Do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, when John says do not love the world, he's not saying, is the world here mean people? Do not love the world. Does that mean we shouldn't love people? What's the world he's talking about here? It's, for the best way I can describe it, it's the satanically controlled system that we find ourselves in. It affects governments. It affects institutions. It affects thought processes. It's just this, this world, this fallen world we lived in where Satan is the prince of this world where we're captive to lust and just all the things that, that, are, that are worldly. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, what's the second enemy? The flesh. Galatians 5.17, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. What's the flesh? It's that remnant of sin that's left in you. Even when you become a Christian, you still have sin in you. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit's battling, and your flesh are battling one another, and there's this internal battle. So you're always going to deal with the flesh, that, that, that residue of your old, your old life that until you step foot into heaven, you won't get rid of. Okay? <coughs> and then the third enemy is the devil. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What's the metaphor that, that, that's used to describe Satan here? I mean, you can picture it in your mind, can't you? How many of you ever been to the Denver Zoo? What's the first thing that happens when you walk in there? The lion, okay? And they have that big display where you can actually go up to the glass. And have you ever been where the lion's been that close? Huge head. I mean, huge head and then huge paws. And most of the time, the lions are just lazy creatures. They're just kind of laying there. You, you never ever see, when you go to the zoo, you never see like you, what you want to see. <laughs> like you want to see a lion take, take out an antelope or something. You want to see like what you see on the Discovery Channel or, or whatever. They're just laying there. But would you want to meet a lion by yourself who's hungry on the savanna of Africa out in the middle of nowhere with this Jew and him? No. What? Then you play dead. You're, you're cat food at that point. That's the way the lion, that's the way that the devil is. He may look like he's kind of sleeping over there at the zoo, 
but really he's prowling around, always prowling around, looking for someone to what? Devour, Devour tear apart. So let's just ask a question. And maybe you've, ever, you've asked this. Where did Satan come from? Okay. There are two passages of Scripture. That's, and how did demons originate? So, so we're going we're gonna to ask this in a couple of different ways. Um, where did where, the origin of Satan and demons? Okay. Now, 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare angels when they what? Sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Demons are angels who sinned in rebellion against God and they're fallen angels. Okay? Revelation tells us probably one-third of the angels. So a demon is, a fall, a demon is an angel that committed sin. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, Jude 1.6 tells us this. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the de- judgment of the great day. Okay, this talks about angels who had also fallen. So Jude and Peter tells us that at one time they were angels, but yet they sinned. And in their fall and their sin, they became what we would call demons. Does that make sense? So I don't think demons were created as demons. I think demons are fallen angels that were created as angels, but they rebelled under Satan's plan, and then they became demons. Now, you can maybe disagree with me on that. The Bible really doesn't tell us a lot. The other big question is on which day were they created, the angels? Does the Bible tell us what day they were created? No. My personal opinion is that they were created, since, since it's the heavens and the earth that were created in Genesis, it could have been that the angels were created even before the earth was created, as long as God created them. I don't think it matters the timing as long as God created them. That's, a, that's a, like how many angels dance on the head of a pen type question. We really don't know. But what about Satan? <clears throat> There's two passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that allude to Satan. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. Now, in the immediate context, it could be talking about a, um, a king, but, but there's some, there's some metaphors here that speak about, about Satan. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Now, anybody have a King James Version? That's where it uses the word Lucifer, which is like a Latinism. Um, so Lucifer, the word Lucifer comes from the King James Version of the Bible. The real Hebrew there really means day star or morning star. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Most scholars believe that this morning star angel was the most glorious of all the angels, the highest of all the angels, that got prideful and said, I'm going to be not just like God, but better than God. How many times does he say I in there? 
I will, I will. And what's the word? Ascend. What does ascend mean? I'm going to rise up. So, but, but what does verse 15 say? You're brought low to Sheol, to the pit. Okay? So it's probably an Old Testament reference to Satan wanting to be like or above God and God humbling him. Okay? Let's go to this Ezekiel passage, Ezekiel 28. You were an anointed guardian cherub. Cherubim. Is that a person? What's a guardian cherub? Does anybody remember what was used at the Garden of Eden to guard a cherubim, an angelic being? You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Okay, is Satan, Satan's a created being. We've got to be real, real careful there. He's, he's not equal to God. He's created by God. Till what was found in you? Unrighteousness. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. An anointed, powerful, guardian cherubim has unrighteousness because of his beauty and says what? I want to, if you cross-reference this with the Isaiah passage, I want to be like God. In both passages, what's the one thing that's the same? I cast you down. Okay? So, most scholars would say that Satan is a created angel who was powerful, who was beautiful, was highly intelligent, but sinned in his pride to want to be above God. And is God going to share his glory with another? No. So God cast him down. He was the first of the fallen angels, the leader of the fallen angels. And the, those other angels that sinned followed Satan. And so since Satan was the high guardian cherub, he's the head of all the demons. The others are just fallen angels that follow Satan. Do I need to stop here? Any, any questions on that? Okay. Satan is the head of the demons. We look at Job. How much time do we have? At the beginning of Job, it says now, Job chapter 1, 6 and 7. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And who came among them? Satan. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. So where's Satan hanging out? On the earth. Now, let's talk about what the word Satan means. The word Satan means enemy, adversary, one who comes against. The word devil means slanderer. So if you take the, 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 just the etymology of the name Satan and devil, it's the enemy who slanders, who comes against. What does it mean to slander? 
Yeah, to speak falsely, to say, to blaspheme, to say things that aren't true. Is Satan, does he say things that aren't true? As we find out in just a moment, Jesus says he's the father of lies. Okay, slanderer. Okay, we also find out in Revelation 12, verse 9, and we don't know, some people look at this as a future. I look at this as a past tense, like this is when it happened. But it says the great dragon, so Satan's also called the great dragon, was thrown down. What does that sound like? The Ezekiel, Isaiah, he was cast down. That ancient serpent, how do we know? He was a serpent in the garden, right? So he's the slanderer, he's the accuser, he's the enemy, he's the dragon, he's the serpent. The deceiver of what? He's called the deceiver. He blinds the minds. The deceiver of the whole. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So why don't we just know, if you just look at these three verses, what does it tell us about Satan? He's a deceiver, he's a slanderer, he's an accuser, he's an enemy, he's a serpent, he's a dragon, he's a lion. Okay? We also know that in the Garden of Eden, what was he called? The serpent. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, now this is the very first words out of Satan's mouth in the entire Bible. And what does he do? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What's the first thing Satan does? He plants a doubt in their mind as to the validity of God's word. He didn't just come out and say, you guys can't believe God. What he, is that sly? Is that a method? Is that a tactic? What does he say? You know, did God really say that? Did you hear God correctly? Or can you bend the rules kind of here? Hmm, you may want to think twice about that. Can God be trusted? Is God looking out for your best interest? God's kind of a mean God because after all, you guys should be free. And he's giving you this one tree that you can't eat of? That kind of sounds like a stingy God. I think you need to rethink this. Did God, did God really say that? And the serpent still speaks today. How many people have gotten up into a pulpit or stood before people and taken this book and said, well, did God really say that? And they've twisted the scripture or they've thrown out the scripture. They're echoing the voice of the serpent. Anytime a pastor or person says, you can't believe this book or you can throw out words in this book or there's something in this book you can't believe, the serpent speaks again. He's also called, we looked at this earlier. Well, no, he didn't. He's called the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's called the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. He's also called murderer. He's called a murderer. This is what Jesus says in John 8, 44. He's speaking to the Pharisees here, but he's talking about the devil. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning. Now, let's just ask a question. Did we ever have any reference of, of, of Satan murdering anybody? So what's Jesus saying there? I think he's talking about murdering with, with words or murdering through rebellion. 
He was a murderer from the beginning. He has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. What does Jesus say about Jesus, uh, Satan right there? His very character is to be a liar. He's the father. If there's, if there's the greatest liar that's ever been known on the planet is Satan. Now, how many of you guys had kids that were pretty good liars? You can get away with a lot of stuff. And there's those like perpetual liars. If there's a perpetual liar that has anyone beat, it's Satan. And Jesus says, there's no, there's no truth in him. He speaks out of his own character. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. He's a murderer. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's a serpent. He's a dragon. And then 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He's been sinning from the very beginning. So based upon all these verses, what, what really is the purpose and activity of Satan and demons? What's their purpose? Well, let me list some things that I think that they do. Whoops. Deception and lies. They tempt us to sin and disobey God. They cause us to question the authority of God's words and commands. They try to influence us to walk in disobedience. The God of this age blinds the minds of unbelievers. Their ultimate goal is nothing. Satan and his demons' ultimate goal is nothing less than the destruction of every single person on planet Earth, including Christians. I mean, that's, that's it. If Satan can send every... If, he can't send people to hell, but if Satan can tempt and deceive and get people to ruin themselves in sin, he's having a field day. Now, what happens when you as a Christian begin to live a godly lifestyle? Is Satan going to like that? What happens when a church begins to become holy and preach the gospel and and advance darkness? Is Satan going to like that? No, he's going to ramp up the efforts. Does Satan have to worry about an apostate church? I mean, a church that's abandoned the gospel, does Satan have to worry about it? He's already won. It's a church that's standing on the truth of the scriptures, that's going forth in evangelism and praying for revival and seeking holiness. That's the church that scares Satan because he knows that, 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 that you know, his... And another thing, too, Satan knows that his time is, is, is done. Let's just real quickly turn to Revelation 12. Um, we've got 15 minutes here. Again, whether you view this as a future thing or a past thing, <clears throat> regardless of, you, of how you look at the timing of it, um, let's just look at verse 7 of, of Revelation chapter 12. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Okay, there he's called the accuser of the brothers. 
who accuses them day and night before our God. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in the sea. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is what? Short. Has the devil read Revelation? You bet. Does the devil know that his ultimate end is the lake of fire? You bet. So he knows his fate is sealed. He can't do anything about that. So what's he going to do in the meantime? Try to wreak as much havoc as he can because his time is short. So he's going to try. He's, like a, he's kind of like a pit bull on a leash. I mean, he doesn't have free reign, but he can only go as far as God lets him. But if you get around him, he's going to, he's going to, he's going to just try to destroy you. Um. We also looked at that Second Corinthians passage, so we don't need to look at that again. Um, one of the things that demons do, they influence false teachers to teach heresies. And let me just tell you, in our day and age, demons are working overtime. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. I think there's people following teachings of demons today. I've said it many times. If a guy goes into a cave and comes out and says he saw, says, says he's seen God and starts a new religion, be very careful. <laughs> that's, a, that's a teaching of demons. Now let's look at Ephesians 6 because this is the passage of Scripture that tells us a little bit about Satan again. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against... What's the word there? That word again. Does the devil have schemes? You bet. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. People aren't the enemy. Satan is. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts. Does, this, does the devil have flaming darts? Yes. <clears throat> of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So we see there that he has schemes. Now, what word is repeated four times in that put on the armor of God? Stand, 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 stand. What are we told to do when it comes to the devil? Stand. What does James say? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Same Greek word. Resist the devil is the same Greek word that Paul uses there for stand. Are we ever told to fight back? We're told to stand. How do we stand? We stand with the gospel. We stand with the breastplate. We stand with the, with the armor. We find out what those schemes are and we stand. Now, here's another important question because this is a question I get asked a lot. Do, not a lot, but do Satan and demons have unlimited power? And can they somehow thwart or destroy the purposes of God? No. It's not like a yin and yang, equal opposite forces. God and Satan are equal opposing forces and it's like a chess match. God makes a move, Satan makes a move. God doesn't know what's going to happen next. No. Satan is a created being. He can only do what God allows him to do. 
What does Job 42.2 say? Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Thwarted means stopped or messed with. Can, any, can anybody, anything, any, even Satan, mess with God's purposes? No. Psalm 115.3, our God is in heaven and he does what? All that he pleases. God's going to do what he wants to do. And then here's the other one. Isaiah 14, 27, for the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? And the answer is no, no one really can do that. God is sovereign. Um, let me give you a little quote here from R.C. Sproul. If there's one maverick molecule in all the universe, then God is not sovereign. If God is not sovereign, he's not God. Is there a maverick molecule roaming around out there over which God has no control? God is sovereign. So we must include that Satan and demons are limited by God's control and they have limited power. Let's just look at a few examples and then maybe we'll have a few, time, a few minutes for questions. In Job, Satan can only do what God gave him permission to do and nothing more. When you read the book of Job, and I mean, he had, God gave specific parameters on what Job can do. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. He couldn't go beyond what God had purposed. And then again in Job 2.6, The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. And Satan can be successfully resisted by Christians. What is James 4.7? I, I, I alluded to that earlier. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So, as Christians, should we be scared of the devil? Should we be aware of the devil? Should we be... Spiritual warfare is one of those weird things. And we can probably all talk about different stories we've had, but how many of you have actually experienced a period where you knew it was spiritual warfare? And sometimes that's hard to really kind of... I mean, I tell the story about Don and I when we had the strongest period of spiritual warfare in our family was when um, I graduated from seminary and we were praying about what God was going to do in our next step. Uh, we were serving as, as a youth pastor in Colorado Springs and we had been approached by a friend of mine to go plant a church outside of Fort Collins. And it was a church that had, that had kind of died down and it, it was dead for like two years and it was... It was out in this area outside of Fort Collins, and so we prayed about it. And we we went up and visited the mother church, and you know met some people that thought about you know helping start the church. And we kind of got the ball rolling, thinking, you know, hey, this is probably what we're going to do. In in the process of that, I I I submitted my resume here at Emmanuel, and Steve Edito, who was the interim who submitted my resume, I, I went and told him, I said, take my resume out of Emmanuel. Um, we're we're going to go to this this church plant, and he said, I'll just I'll just keep it in which he never took it out. Um, so we were up to the very point where we had to make a decision on whether we were going to do this church plan. And we'd have to like raise all our own support and everything. So Don and I and Aiden and Zach, and the weird thing is Aiden, we, go, we, we pull up to this church. We've never been to this church before in our life. And Aiden's what, like five, six? He's like, I've seen this church in my dream before. And I'm like, you've seen what? So that was kind of freaky. But then like we drove up there to just kind of drive around the area and normally when Don and I are in the car, I'm pretty talkative. I usually talk a lot more than Don does. And between Aiden and me, Don's like, I can't get a word in edgewise. So, but it was like very eerily silent. We're, we're driving around. 
we're looking at the neighborhood. We're, we're kind of like we went up to the church. We kind of went up this canyon, drove around, and then um, drove back to Colorado Springs. and didn't, didn't really talk a lot. Um, we got back, got the boys to bed. Um, Don was already in, in bed. And I went into my living room, the living room, um, to pray. So I kneeled on the couch to begin to just pray and ask God to give us direction. And I literally, for the life of me, could not pray. It was the first time in my life I could not, I, I physically couldn't pray. I felt like this weight on my chest. I could not pray. And so I'm like, I probably need to go talk to Don. And so I got up, and don't think I'm mystical or weird, okay, so I'm telling you this. I got up and walked from my couch down the hall to the, to the um, bedroom, and there's a bathroom, the, 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 the main bathroom on the level. I literally thought I was going to see a demon in that bathroom. I was literally scared to go from the couch to the bedroom because I thought there was something there. So I go in, and I lay down next to Don. And what, what happened next? I think you kind of touched me, and I said, are you okay? And she says, no. I'm not okay. She's like, there is something wrong. And I'm like, yeah, I think I just saw a demon, Don. There is something wrong. And she felt in her spirit like, I just, I like laid, I may have laid there for a little while, but it was this oppressive feeling on my chest where I just couldn't breathe. It was like this, like, weight, like I kept sinking me down into the bed. And then Don's like, we need to call your dad right now. Call your dad. We need to call, we need to call somebody right now. I'm like, Don, it's like midnight. I don't care. Call your dad. Because <laughs> my dad's a pastor. And so we called my dad at midnight and said, I think we're experiencing spiritual warfare. What do we do? And so he's like, oh, you know, he's like half asleep. I'll pray for you. But anyway, um, so we wrestled like the next couple of days. And, and our biggest fear was, here's the biggest part that was hard for us. Was that experience God's way of saying, we want you to go and it's going to be hard? Or was it God's way of saying, this is a spirit, or was it de- the devil's way? We didn't, really didn't know how to process it, but ultimately through prayer, through counsel, we determined that um, it wasn't God's will, and so we said no. And so about a few days later, I'm sitting on my couch, and it was Sunday night, church was over, and it was probably about 9 o'clock, and, and um, I hadn't even thought about Emmanuel. And I think I looked at Don, and I said, you know, I bet you Emmanuel, I said, I bet you Emmanuel Baptist Church is going to call in about five minutes. Do you remember? Well, I... Th- I- <laughs> Or maybe I was thinking it to myself. But I said, Emmanuel's going to, I think Emmanuel's going to call. And I'm like, I didn't even thought about Emmanuel like in two months. And five minutes later, the phone rings, and it's Leroy Whipke saying, hey, we're from Emmanuel Baptist Church. We'd like to have you come out for an interview as pastor. And I'm like, that's weird. So anyway, that was an experience of spiritual warfare. And sometimes you can't really process it while you're in it. But you know that the one confidence I had is this. And this is the confidence I'll give you. If you experience spiritual warfare, it's not because God's not in control. It's not like Satan's doing it without God's permission. God allows Satan to do it, and there's a purpose behind it, just like he did with Job. And so you can be assured that God is allowing it for a purpose. Now, what that purpose is, we may never know. And it may be painful, and it may be freaking, and it may be weird, but God is allowing it to happen because Satan can't do anything that God doesn't allow him to do. So that's good comfort. But it's also kind of like, why are you letting Satan pick on me? <laughs> Any questions, comments, or side remarks? Yes? Um, Satan's a created being, so yes. he can only be in one place at yes. one time, right? Yes. And so when you say Satan and spiritual warfare, you mean demons. And yes. Satan. Yes. Um, yeah, yes. whether. <laughs> Yeah, the, the big question is, is it Satan that attacks you or is it demons? Um, Satan may have better people to pick on than us, 
And he may send his demons to do that. Um, but Satan is a created being, so he's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere present at one time. He's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. And I don't know if Satan can actually read your mind. I think what I believe is that demons and Satan have had, like I said, thousands of years of observation of human history. They know people pretty well. And they know where our buttons are and how to get us. Yeah, 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 at the very top. And it's one thing we need to remember. There are principalities and powers and hierarchies. So, you know, if Satan's the head of it, he's probably going towards the higher, I don't want to say higher influential people, but we really don't know how Satan and his army of demons operate. We just know that there's a lot of them, and they're active. And we shouldn't be afraid of them. We should be sober-minded. But in all things, we're told to resist the devil and he will flee from us.